0: The biological makeup is enhanced by Earth's yellow sun.
1: Nerd! Dr. Doom wears body armor to conceal his own
0: mangled form.
1: Worst episode ever. Why? Who shot first? Yeah. Who gives a shit? It it's what's called super nerd nitpicking over something that's not really that important.
0: Trennis Magnus Punches Reality. I'm your host, Magnus, and this is the IOU episode of my show. Basically, what's going on is a lot of you might have been expecting me to talk about Wonder Woman The Contest in this episode, and if the, the music that I've used in this episode is any indication... I should think it's probably obvious that I'm not going to be talking about Wonder Woman or the contest during this episode. And the reason for that's actually rather simple. What I wanted for my contest episode was to have Gene, Gene, the podcasting machine Hendrix, on the show with me so that we could talk about the contest. And unfortunately, There's just no way to work out my schedule and get it to sync up with his schedule, and all of that stuff. So that's pretty much the situation that I have to deal with now. Before I go any further, please do not interpret that as me shit talking, Gene, because I would never, in a million years, do that. This is just one of those. It's just one of those things. It happens sometimes in 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 in, uh, this game of podcasting that. You know what? Sometimes you just cannot sync your schedule up with your intended guest host, and the way I see it, if I were to attempt to do the Wonder Woman contest episode all by my lonesome, there's no way it would be a tenth of what it would be if if Jean was on the show. So rather than do a <clears throat> rather than do a a, a sort of a half-assed job with it, I've decided. You know what? I, put it down to a culpa i guess i'm gonna wait until gene and i can actually sit down together and do the show properly or else i'm just not gonna do it it's as simple as that but i want to have gene on that show and if it, and no matter how long it takes sooner or later he and i are gonna record that episode but until then i just don't see the point of doing you know a second-rate version of it so Pretty much that's where I'm coming from right now when it comes to Wonder Woman, the contest. So, again, I'm not insulting Gene. I'm not shit-talking Gene. I'm not doing anything like that. I'm just saying that... Actually, if anything, I'm doing the opposite. I'm, I'm talking the guy up because I don't want to do a half-assed job with it. I know that the minute I bring him into this, uh, bring him into the Wonder Woman contest episode, it's going to be a better episode than what I can do all by myself. So... I don't want i I just don't want to do a lesser job, so uh that this is actually intended to be a compliment to him. Um, now, since there are other things to talk about anyway, I figured I can just use this opportunity to do so. One of the things that I wanted to do way back when I started up Treus Magnus Punch's reality was going to be at some point or another, talking about the shadow strikes which was an ongoing monthly title starring, wait for it, The Shadow. And this, this series, The Shadow Strikes, this started up in September of 1989, or at least that's the cover date on issue number one. And you could think of this, this ongoing series as being sort of a, a reaction, I guess, to the uh, Shadow series that had been going on up to that point. Now, originally, um, what happened was... And of course, now I'm... I'm uh, wouldn't you know, I'm, I'm blanking on the guy's name. Uh, Howard Shaken. He did a four-issue Shadow miniseries back in 1986. And that version of the Shadow was... I think you could... It, it could fairly be said. That version of the Shadow was unlike anything that The Shadow had ever been before. And I would almost want to say that he was kind of like the Punisher mixed with elements of The Shadow, mixed with whatever fucked up forces drive Howard Shaken's imagination. And overall, I just don't... I'm not a big fan of that Howard Shaken Shadow miniseries. To me, that's pretty much everything The Shadow shouldn't be. But I gotta tell you... That Shadow miniseries by Howard Shakin, it almost looks like a New York Times bestseller as compared to the uh, Andrew Helfer ongoing Shadow series that spun out of it. I mean, again, it was just everything the Shadow shouldn't be. It was set in the modern day. It was way over-the-top violent. And in my opinion, all of the mystery and... I don't know, just the just the atmosphere that I want from a shadow story It's it, it was almost like that mini-series and then that ongoing series were sort of a repudiation of all of that and so to kind of bring it all back on topic you could think of the shadow strikes as being sort of a response to that where DC it's almost like they're tapping the reader on the shoulder and saying no no we can do a real shadow comic book and here's the proof this is Uh, The Shadow Strikes, and before we even really get into the comic, what I want to do is actually kind of go back in time a little bit and sort of tell my story of The Shadow, because this, you know, I I think you can kind of assume uh, a common backstory for a lot of people when it comes to characters like Superman or Batman, or even The Flash, you could say, but The Shadow... Honestly, to be a fan of The Shadow... I almost find... I, less so now, but I, I I find that it's almost like you have to justify that. You know? Uh, it, it's almost like what being an Aquaman fan used to be, where if it came out that your favorite character was Aquaman, you kind of had to justify that. Well, same thing, kind of, with... The Shadow, although to a lesser degree. But basically, it all really goes back to 1994 and the Shadow movie that came out that year. That really was my first exposure to The Shadow. Now, he was a character that I'd heard of and I'd seen around a little bit, but I'd never really read any of his stories. I'd never heard the radio show, never really had anything much to do with The Shadow, apart from just seeing the character here and there. And thinking that, you know, he had a really cool look to him. But other than that, I just didn't really know anything about the shadow. And I guess you could say that kind of changed in 1994 when I rented the movie. Because back then, you know, you, you if you wanted to rent a movie, you actually had to go to a video store and rent a videotape and then watch it. And that was how you went about Renting movies, you know, this whole idea of streaming it all on uh, uh, streaming it all through Netflix or something like that. Not possible back then. So, and it would be a mistake to say that I came away from the Shadow movie as a hardcore Shadow fan. That just would not be true. That having been said, though, one of the things that I did take from the movie was this kind of uneasy feeling that the shadow is what Batman believes himself to be. You know? Batman pretends to be something. The shadow really is that thing. You know? And that's a sensation that, to be honest with you, it's only gotten stronger over the years. And... But that's really where it started. You know, this uneasy feeling I had that, you know, as a huge Batman fan that I was back then, this idea that somebody is darker than Batman, they're more driven than Batman, they're more violent than Batman. I mean, it's the rare character that makes Batman look like Diet Coke, but that's pretty much who the Shadow is. And that was at once very... That was very enticing for me, but it was also kind of repelling as well, so there's a weird dichotomy that's going on there. So, I want to say it was maybe a year or two later, I had dinner with my parents and my brothers and my grandparents at the Cracker Barrel, which, for those of you who don't know, the Cracker Barrel is this sort of throwback, sort of vintage uh, chain of restaurants that they're trying very hard to look and feel like a 1930s and 1940s sort of diner. And so at least back in the 90s, when they were a little bit more clear about their corporate identity, you would find in their little gift shop, because they have a gift shop, all of this sort of vintage, well, it's not vintage really, but it's a sort of throwback Um, media-type stuff in their gift shop, right? So you might have a Gone with the Wind poster in there. Or a Wizard of Oz... I don't know. uh, Wizard of Oz bullshit in the gift shop. But one of the things that they also had was these episodes of old-timey radio shows on CD and on uh, tape cassette, right? And mostly tape cassette. So, plus the CDs were just way overpriced. So I thought, well, I could pay like 20 bucks or something like that for a CD. Or I could listen to one of, uh, I could buy one of their cassettes for ultra cheap and listen to that. So I had, on a previous trip there, picked up a, a cassette of old Superman radio shows. Which, for those of you who are interested, it was the first couple of chapters of... I believe the series is called The Strange Case of Dr. Walter Roebling. And so I wasn't... I wasn't completely new to uh, radio radio shows. I wasn't completely new to them. I was by no means an expert, but I wasn't totally new to them either. And so I took the... The uh two shadow cassettes that I that, that my dad bought for me, I bought I brought those home, listened to them. And one thing that I kind of came away with was this character in these radio shows is he's not really all that much like the character in the movie. And if you if you partake of both of them side by side, it's really true, you know? I mean, yeah, they both call themselves The Shadow. They're both known as Lamont Cranston. And they both have the ability to uh, cloud people's minds so that uh, they can't be seen. But when you move away from, really, those three things... Oh, and they both run around with somebody called Margot Lane. But when you move away from those key issues, they're really not all that similar to one another. So... This was the first indication I got that, you know, for as good as The Shadow radio show might be, not exactly the same as The Shadow in other media. So that was pretty interesting. And The Shadow radio show was always one of those things that I kind of kept a passing interest in. you I, when I could find a... Uh, a cache of radio shows, whether it was on c d for cheap or maybe I could download some off the internet or just wherever I generally would want to look into them because you really can't beat the atmosphere this this it's this strange mixture of film noir mixed with kind of nineteen thirties nineteen forties universal style horror kind of, and in a weird kind of way, I would almost want to say the seeds of what would be (laughs) Scooby-Doo planted in there as well, because there's little or no supernatural aspect, or I should say paranormal aspect of the, uh, of the shadow radio show. No matter how paranormal something might appear to be, there's always a very reasonable, very clear, very easy, very scientific explanation for everything. And so same thing really with Scooby-Doo. So I almost feel like there's a, there's a debt of gratitude there, but I don't know. Anyway, so flash forward a bunch of years, really, like probably like 10 years, and I found a, uh, a a cache of uh, shadow's uh, pulp scans online, and I was uh, just, you know, flipping through those, and here again, I found yet another version of the shadow. So, there's the there's the the Shadow character as he was seen in the movie which really isn't all that similar to the Shadow as he was in the radio show neither of which are very similar to the Shadow as he was in the pulps. So what the fuck? I mean, how can one character be so different in all of all of these different media? That was yet another interesting aspect of The Shadow that, to be honest with you, I don't know how many other characters can really match. It's just interesting. So then from there, I decided The Shadow isn't natively a comic book character. You could more readily argue that he's natively a pulp character, or he's natively, one could say, a radio character. But the idea of a Shadow comic book... When you think about it, he's not of the comics in the same way that Batman is, or the same way that Superman is, or a bunch of other characters. I mean, there are a lot of characters who, without their comics, those characters don't exist. That's not really true of the Shadow, though, because he started life as something else altogether, in some something else altogether. And so I thought, well, to me, there's got to be some kind of a visual angle to who the Shadow is and what he can do. Or not do as the story may be, but the movie there's just not really much out there apart from the movie and honestly, as much as I do enjoy the movie, I'm not sure I'm not sure how faithful a depiction of the shadow that really is. Maybe that's the most politic way to put it, but as good as the movie might be. I couldn't shake the feeling that there's more to the shadow than that. So, started reading the comics. And like I say, the um, the uh, DC comics from the uh, the 80s, that's where I started. I couldn't put my finger on it, but I just did not like him. you know? I did not like that Howard Shaken, that terrible Howard Shaken miniseries. And I really did not like that ongoing series that spun out of the... Um, the uh, Howard mini miniseries. So I thought, well, maybe what I need to do is go sort of backwards in the Shadow's chronology and maybe find something more interesting earlier in his publication history. So I did. And I came across that Shadow uh, ongoing series that uh, DC published back in uh, the early 70s or the mid-70s or something. And, you know, those sh- th- those stories were good. Don't get me wrong. Very enjoyable, but the series ended a little bit prematurely. So I mean we don't really know necessarily what Denny O'Neill might have had in mind for the future of of that ongoing series. It only lasted, I believe, twelve issues before it was canceled. And, you know, it's just a little bit of a crying shame in uh in a lot of ways. So like I say, very enjoyable, and I definitely enjoyed uh, Mike Kaluda's art, but like I say, I just couldn't, I just felt like, I'm trying to find the best way to put it, I'm not trying to insult Denny O'Neill or anything, but I just felt like there has to be something more than this. Now, excuse me while I open up my Coke here. So, like I say, all due respect to Denny O'Neill, I just felt like there is more potential to The Shadow than he was able to capture in that otherwise amazing um, ongoing series that lasted for 12 issues that he did. There's got to be something more. So, I decided to go forward, once again, in uh, The Shadow's publication history. And... came across the Shadow Strikes number 1 which like i say has the cover date September 1989 written by Gerard Jones and illustrated by Eduardo Barreto and read this comic and i realized this is what i've been looking for this to me is what Sh- the shadow stories need to be like. There's this, and we'll get into it a little bit more in just a moment, but there's this unshakable uh, atmosphere of mystery and intrigue, and I would almost want to say danger on every single page. But there's something else going on in this series that It becomes more pronounced as the series goes on, but there's something else going on here that readers need to be sensitive to, but we'll come back to that in just a bit. Like I say, though, this is The Shadow Strikes, and the mission statement here is actually pretty simple. Like I say, DC wanted to, uh, how should I put it, woo back disgruntled shadow fans who were maybe put off by the howard shaken miniseries and then the ongoing series spinning out of that so this was their attempt at t- at a uh shall we say more traditional type of uh shadow series and well i'll get more into my thoughts on the series at large later on but for right now this is the shadow strikes Number one, cover date is September 1989, cover price is $1.75, writer is Gerard Jones, penciler is Eduardo Barreto, and the title of this bad boy is Death's Head, and it all starts with a headless corpse being discovered at the uh, inside the Cobalt Club in New York, the year is 1935, and He's originally mistaken for Lamont Cranston, but Cranston actually comes wandering into the room later on, so it's discovered, number one, he's alive and well, which, number two, raises the question of who the hell this dead body is. Before too long, Lamont Cranston fishes the man's wallet out of his pocket, and the man's identified, this murder victim, this headless murder victim, is identified as Algis Moncrief, who is a liaison for the Department of State, the United States Department of State, and it seems like at least one person in the room, Mr. Nichols, knows more about this murder than he's letting on. So Lamont Cranston wanders into a phone booth, calls Detective Cardona in his guise as the Shadow and has him come to investigate the crime scene. Cardona doesn't know that Lamont Cranston is the shadow, and so they eventually bump heads with one another. There's some static going on there, and uh, that gets uh, dealt with a little bit more as the series progresses. But in the here and now, at least on page six, what we get is a little bit of historical and political context for goings-on with this story. Specifically, America's relations with the Soviet Union as it was at, at this time in 1935. And it really is kind of a weird thing when you look back at it. I mean, here you had uh, Franklin Roosevelt making nice with the Soviets who at the time, at least on paper, should have been our avowed mortal enemies. So why are we making nice with them? And there, there was just a lot of I got to be honest, you know, there's a lot of weird bullshit that was going on in the 1930s uh, in, in relation to international geopolitics. I mean, a lot of things from that time just really don't make a whole lot of sense until you start investigating the history of it and, you know, figuring out just why it is that certain things were happening. And it kind of leads you into a sort of cynical view of history, to be honest with you. But maybe that's another topic for another time. As it relates to this story, though, it's important to understand goings on with uh, the Soviet Union and specifically be aware of the fact that, yes, there was a re- a revolution um, in, uh, in Russia. Golly, what year? Like 1918, 1919, something. Basically, I'm talking around the Bolshevik Revolution. So pretty much is what we're what we're referring to here. So anyway, so Nichols and this man is not actually named anywhere on this page, it seems. But anyway, um, Nichols and one of his toadies, I guess, are basically talking about Moncrief's passing and basically call him a traitor to his class. And that's when Lamont uh, Cranston wanders in and basically starts working both of them over gently for information he's asking questions and, and again it's kind of hard to shake the idea that he's not he's basically doing what Batman at least in the 1930s and at least part of the 1940s part of what he would use his Bruce Wayne identity for to interface with the upper crust and at times use that identity to investigate crimes in ways that honestly Batman just can't so, that same type of thing is going on here. So, <clears throat> on page seven, in comes. I can't even really call this woman uh, Mon- uh, Moncrief's widow because they really weren't married. And of course, now they're never going to be married. But anyway, she's basically wailing and carrying on. And again, she seems to know a little bit more about this murder than she ought to considering the fact that this supposedly happened randomly and there's no way anyone could have known that it was going to happen so what the fuck elsewhere across town specifically on park avenue Margot lane gets a call from the shadow telling her move her ass and get into action elsewhere, elsewhere across town at that same moment, at the Hotel Metrolite, Harry Vincent basically has to bail on uh, his girlfriend so that he too can roll into action and get to work for the shadow. So, elsewhere, 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 on page 12, Margot Lane attends... I don't even know what the hell to call this thing. This is... It's not exactly uh, a church service or a mass or anything like that. But I don't know. Anyway, basically she bribes her way into this place, this strange It's not a seminar, it's not it's not a church. So ser- I, again, I don't know what the fuck to call this thing, but it's yeah, uh, it's what it is. So and she basically She basically watches this guy in this huge red robe. Again, this isn't church, and he's not exact. And I don't want to give this person's identity away, at least just yet, but he's basically talking about things that sound, at least superficially, vaguely similar to Christian doctrine you know, in terms of salvation and forgiveness and sin and all of these sorts of things. But the difference is, his view of sin is very unorthodox as compared to the Christian view of sin, which is that sin taints you, sin is to be avoided and resisted. His This guy, this monk person's view is that you cannot be saved if you do not sin, or else what are you <clears throat> what are you being saved from? How can you be saved etc which again, I'm not trying to get religious here with anybody or anything, but if you know anything about Christian doctrine, you know that that's some pretty weird theology that guy's rolling with, so definitely that's pretty strange so it gets stranger when this monk person appears to hold up a a decapitated head, that same uh, blonde woman from the Cobalt Club who was just freaking out over the fact that What's-His-Name Moncrief had just been beheaded, her seemingly decapitated head, at which time her eyes open and she begins talking. Now, as all of that's going on, uh, Harry Vincent is on business of his own. He's tailing a uh, a car matching uh, the same description as the car driven by Nichols, driven by a guy who certainly resembles Nichols. So, you know, Harry Vincent's got enough of his own bullshit going on here. He comes across a meeting with what looks to be gypsies, but before he can get a better understanding of what's going on. He gets jumped. Elsewhere, we finally get our main star of this thing. At the Consulate of the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics, or in other words, at the Soviet Embassy in New York, the shadow breaks in and basically comes across what you might call... This isn't exactly a smoking gun, but it does actually raise a whole lot of questions about just who the hell Algis Moncrief really is and what exactly he's up to. Because it looks like Moncrief is in bed with um, in, uh, American industrialists who themselves are in bed with the Soviet government. So exactly what the fuck is going on here? And of course, the shadow knows, but we don't at least not yet. Unexpectedly, the shadow overhears a conversation uh, going on in the next room over, and so he decides to listen in. One of the men talking is Mr. Zherkov, and the other one is Vasilovich. Am I pronouncing that right? Vasilovich? V-A-S-I-L-V-I-C-H? Vasilovich. I do not know. But anyway, you've got Vasilovich and Zhirkov basically arguing over advancement in the party. But it becomes pretty clear that Zherkov has Vasilovich kind of over a barrel. He's got some kind of damning evidence against him that basically could get him shipped off to a gulag if uh, the party's upper management ever finds out about it. So the main issue loyalty. They've got to show that, uh, they're, uh, they've got to show their capitalist friends that they personally are worthy of their moral and more importantly, their financial support. So the shadow follows, uh, these guys outside and he recognizes the driver or thinks he does actually, she's not the driver. He recognizes one of the followers. My apologies. The Shadow recognizes, uh, as their car drives off, he recognizes one of the followers of the car. So, meanwhile, uh, back at this weird, uh, ritual that's going on, uh, again, you've got this seemingly disembodied head that's talking to everybody, which is 10 different kinds of weird. Elsewhere, at the Waldorf Astoria, Lamont Cranston spies somebody who reminds him of somebody he knew pretty well back in the old days. She makes him and runs out the back door and then gets ambushed by somebody who basically pulls a gun on her, is about to blow her head off. When the shadow shows up, blows that guy's head off, and the shadow questions this mysterious blonde woman asking just who the hell she is, and she says that she's nobody. At which time, the shadow replies with, Yes. Yes, you are. Anastasia. (laughs) And that is the end of the issue. Now, you might ask, so... What did I think? But before we get into that, like I said, this was a, a comic that I actually wanted to talk about way at the beginning of Trenus Magnus Punch's reality, and it just never happened. And honestly, there are reasons for that. The most obvious of which was this is, as far as, I guess, like structure, pacing, and to a degree subject matter, this was a comic book and honestly the f- the first chapter of a storyline that I just didn't really feel all that comfortable talking about with all by myself back when I first started this show. I felt like I needed I needed help with a show like this. And so there's a Shadow podcast out there and I actually managed to connect with the host of it and I basically was planning to have him on the show so that he and I could talk about this together and the idea i had was that he could kind of cover for me and my weaknesses as a podcaster at that time so that hopefully i could talk about this comic book series that i loved so much but never but just didn't i guess feel completely comfortable talking about all by myself and that kind of leads into something that kind of derailed my, I guess maybe derailed my willingness to talk about this series, and that was specifically, I had this idea to do a series of uh, creator-driven episodes. Basically, I had an episode with Dan Jurgens that I wanted to do, and I did it. And I had an episode with Norm Brayfogle that I wanted to do. And I did it. There were supposed to be three more episodes in that creator series, that comic book creator series that I was going to do. At least three more, maybe four more uh, episodes. And it ended up never happening. And we're getting like w- way into like the early beginnings of, uh, of this show. For those of you who, <clears throat> who remember my episodes with Dan Jurgens and Norm Brayfogle, it's a pretty long time ago, but um, what happened was uh, I wanted to have I wanted like I say I wanted to have Dan Jurgens on for this was uh, Dan Jurgens was on for episode thirty one, and Norm Brayfogle was actually on for episode thirty. And like I said, there were supposed to be three, possibly four more uh, episodes in that comic book creator series. And obviously they ended up never happening. And the reason for that was because there was a particular comic book writer that was supposed to be on the show. He agreed to be on the show. But actually getting him onto this show proved to be such an in-fucking-credible pain in the nuts that I decided, you know what, fuck it. I'm just going to release the, sh- the uh, two shows that I have, the ones with Norm Brayfogle, who was awesome, and Dan Jurgens, who was awesome. I'm just going to release those episodes right now and fuck all the rest of them. I don't ever want to deal with this again. And by and large, I really don't. I don't think I ever want to have another comic book pro on this show ever again because it's just such a pain in the ass. So, not that Dan Jurgens and Norm Brayfogel were a pain in the ass. Completely the opposite. But the other people that I wanted to have on this show totally a pain in the ass. So, but one of the things that I wanted to do, and this ended up being kind of a casualty, I wanted to have Gerard Jones on this show. And like I said, when I made the decision to just, you know, say, fuck it, I'm not doing any of these shows now. Well, this is, like I say, this is one of the casualties of that decision, but started rereading uh, this not just this issue, but this com this title a couple of weeks ago, and I once again just completely fell in love with all of this. With really this this entire series, but Honestly, I mean it it's kinda hard to put it into words, but I mean literally, I'm not kidding, from page one, the 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 mystery and the atmosphere, it's it's just leaking off the page, you know? And this is all aided and abetted by Eduardo Barreto's art, you know? And, like, a classic example, right? Uh, right here on page two, you see the first headless corpse in the story. The first of quite a few, as I recall. And the... The lighting, the shadow, the, by which I mean the shadowing, the atmosphere. But then there's also a silhouette, a sort of reverse silhouette of the shadow on the page at the top. You can see the slouch hat. You can see uh, yeah, the the uh, the twin the twin guns and all that. It's just. It's just powerful. I mean, in a weird kind of way, this tells you everything about the shadow that you need to know. But not really. And at the same time, it's also kind of a joke on the previous ongoing series where the the shadow had his head uh, grafted onto a, uh, I guess, basically a cybernetic body. Well, somebody, a headless corpse is mistaken for Lamont Cranston, and I just thought that was kind of cheeky. On Gerard Jones's part, but more than that it this is the kind of weird fucked up macabre type of murders that would take place in a shadow comic, and I just eat it up with a spoon I mean this is great, but the other thing that Gerard Jones does not again not just in this in this one ti- this one issue, but I mean all through this title he ties goings on with the story in with history, and what I find is that. The early to mid 20th century history is a pretty weird thing, you know, when you really start analyzing it. I mean, basically everything leading up to World War II, you know, everything after World War II, I think a lot of people have a pretty decent bead on, but goings on during and certainly prior to World War II, it would blow your mind to find out how many people know fuck all about that. So, it's this kind of gives you a little bit of a taste of just the weird, I don't know, just the weird goings-on with American politics, and I would say really international geopolitics, um, certainly in the 1930s, where you had these really strange, really uh, illogical alliances going on between, for example, the United States and the USSR, who, again... Really shouldn't have anything in common with each other, so why exactly was there any kind of um, uh, a- a- any kind of a, uh, a an alliance between these two? I would say almost a- antithetical uh, countries. Well, you do some digging in history. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna answer that question for you, but if you do some digging in history, you'll find some pretty ugly answers for that. So anyway, think of that as a homework assignment if you're so interested. So the other thing, though, is that the writing, as good as it might be, the writing, I think it would actually fall kind of flat. No, no offense to, to Gerard Jones, but I actually think it would fall kind of flat if it wasn't for Eduardo, uh, Eduardo uh, Barreto's art. Now, this, is not, this was not my first introduction to Eduardo Barreto as an artist, but this, this was the first time that I ever saw Eduardo Barreto draw a story that I felt really lined up with his talents as, a, uh, as an artist. And, I mean, on the one hand, I'm, I'm tempted to say, you know what, no, he, he isn't exactly Mike Kaluta, but you know what? I'm not going to damn him with faint praise like that. I mean, no, he's not Mike Kaluta. He's Eduardo fucking Barreto. And he brings just as much power and just as much atmosphere in every single panel in his own way as Kaluta did in his way. So to me, it's not a, it's not a matter of one being better than the other. To me, it's both and and i just love the shit out of this art because apart from everybody uh, or rather apart from you know the the amount of atmosphere that's on every page i mean again you flip over to uh, page 4 the very bottom where uh, the very bottom of the page the last panel you see lamont uh, lamont cranston he's in a phone booth and he says uh uh, basically Cardona get your ass down here so that you can investigate this crime scene. You can see again it's a it's like the reverse of a silhouette. The there there is shadow inside of the phone booth, but the light is in the shape of the shadow's profile. And I just I love that. I love it. It's awesome. So but but moreover than that, I mean this is a wide cast of characters. I mean there's gotta be at least 12, well, between 8 and 12 uh, characters with speaking parts in this story. And it's got to be a challenge for an artist to draw that many characters and have them look distinct from one another. But Barretto does that. And it you, you're not going to mix Cardona up with Cranston, even though they both wear... Uh, you know, coats and hats and whatnot. And, you know, the Russian characters, they all look different from each other. And it's this, to me, is the mark of, of, I guess, a great, you know, somebody who's just naturally talented at graphic storytelling, when they can draw all of these different characters and keep everybody visually distinct from everybody else you know or here's another one harry vincent looks nothing at all like uh inspector cardona right and you know they there's a sense in which they kind of serve similar purposes in this issue you know they both have to investigate shit but they look different from one another and they do different things and it's easy to keep them separate in your mind because of how different they look from each other so that's that's also pretty nice. Another nice element is just the architecture. I mean, you see a little bit of um, Times Square right here on page 12. Not much, but you get a little bit of a glimpse at it as it was back in the 1930s. And again, this is just, it's easy to forget, you know, just how much New York has changed over the decades, but in a weird kind of way, how much it's stayed the same. So, I don't know. Uh, Barreto has that right balance of keeping things recognizable but still just a few degrees off from what you expect of New York City in a sort of generic sense so I don't know and if you ask me I mean for as good as this issue is and it is definitely good my view is that the series would only get better from here because this is actually still pretty early on in Gerard Jones's career and he at the time that he wrote this issue, he wasn't quite as talented a writer or not as talented. He wasn't as practiced, shall we say. He wasn't as evolved as a writer as he would be even by the end of this series where I think by the end of this series it, it it's official. This is The Shadow Strikes is truly definitive. And if you know anything at all, about the the last, the very final storyline in The Shadow Strikes, then you may understand why it is I say that this series is definitive. But don't cheat and just read that story first. I say it's actually worth it to start with the first issue of The Shadow Strikes, and then before you start the final storyline, read the annuals. Or actually, I think... Is it annuals or is it? I think there was actually only one annual. Now that I think about it, but uh, anyway, whatever. Read the annual that came out and then read the final storyline. I think it's twenty-eight issues, twenty-eight to thirty-one. I think. Don't quote me on that, but I think that's the way that it that it's structured. So, but anyway, whatever. Before you read the very final storyline, read the annual, then read the final storyline, and I challenge you to disagree with me, you know, that this is the definitive shadow comic book. And I just don't see how anything else could be argued. You know, I don't see how the contrary could possibly be argued. But I don't know. Your actual mileage may vary. So again, this is uh, all intended to sort of fill in for my Wonder Woman contest episode. I'm going to do that episode at some point in the future. And I'm going to do that episode specifically with Gene Gene, the podcasting machine Hendrix. I just don't know when it's going to be. But when it happens, just keep your eye out. It's coming. So I just have no idea when. It could, be, it could be six months. It could be a year. It could be two years. I have no idea. But sooner or later, he and I are going to do that episode. Just be sure of that. But for right now, I think I've pretty much talked myself out. So, as to next week, um, basically what I've got is, this is going to be, I don't want to call it a rant, exactly, but it's going to be a little bit of a... uh, It's going to be sort of a, I guess, a story about what it is that happened with my Facebook. For those of you who remember there was this time over the summer where my Facebook was suspended and then it got reinstated. So what exactly happened there? Well, it's kind of a long story and next week's episode, which is scheduled to come out on December the 1st, that's going to answer that question for you. And, And like I say, I mean, it's not so simple as to say, well, just one thing happened. There's, it was kind of an, a snowball escalating series of events that happened. So there's that. Following that, December the 8th, I'm going to be rejoined by Chris Honeywell so that he and I can talk about The Big Book of Thugs. So just keep an ear out for that. Uh, following that, uh, this is uh, December the 15th. This is uh, the the fourth part of my uh, retrospective of um, uh, Smallville's Mighty Third Season. So uh, I'm basically nearing the end of... The Mighty Season 3... When it comes to Smallville... In fact, you know what? That may actually be the end... No, there's actually one more after that... So... uh, But that's... December the 15th... That's gonna be uh, part 4... Of the Mighty Season 3 retrospective... So... Keep an ear out for that... Then starting on December the 22nd... I'm gonna be starting this... Fucking huge... I swear, it's like a 12 or 13 part... uh, Mega series... I'm going to be joined not for every single episode, but I'm going to be joined frequently by John M Wilson so that he and I can uh, you know, work our way through this this huge mega series. And I'm not going to get too much into um uh, details about that at least just yet because uh there's going to be a a a, a promo, a brand new promo that uh drops for this mega series next week and so i don't don't want to spoil anything just yet but it's actually it's not even next week it's actually a couple of days from now so but there's going to be uh and i actually forget how many how many episodes this is going to consist of but it's like 12 or 13 episodes this mega series that uh wilson and i are going to work through so um hope you enjoy that and uh, that's actually going to take us into well not just through the end of 2015 but through a decent bit of uh the first part of 2016, so there's something to look forward to. Anyway, but uh, no matter how you look at it, that's pretty much it for me this week, and that, and those are going to be the things that are going to be occupying my attention for the next couple of months, so that should be fun. So, But as it is for right now, bye everybody, I will see you next week. The Shadow
1: Hey, Jeff. Hey, Mike. I'm trailing. Man, it sure is great to be back to FCTC after such a long time. Yes, it is. And we've been away so long. Yeah, but real life... And, uh, you, you know what? I, I just I just can't do this. Can't do what? We have taken more breaks from this show than my wife has had in her entire life. I mean, we could talk about real life getting in the way. Which it has. But it's, it's just not fair so we're not going to joke around and we're going to simply say that for the moment we're back and there's a lot of neat stuff to talk about like season 2 of Lois and Clark and the death of Clark Kent and the launch of Superman the Man of Tomorrow and the return of Lex Luthor and the trial of Superman and Underworld Unleashed (laughs) the show can still be found at the Superman homepage as well as at the Fortress of bailey and we're still part of the Superman Podcast Network so From Crisis to Crisis is back for now. And it will still come out on Thursdays. Most week at www.fortressofbailey2.com, www.supermanhomepage.com, or www.supermanpodcastnetwork.com. Hey everyone, Michael Bailey here with a trailer for an exciting series of episodes of Views from the Long Box. To help me with this trailer, I have brought along none other than Darth Vader. What is thy bidding, my master? I, uh, I had to pay extra for that one. Now, normally on Views, I talk about comics, either alone or with a friend. However, with The Force Awakens hitting theaters soon, I have been all excited for Star Wars. And with the sudden massive amount of free time I have found myself with, I decided to devote all of the December episodes of Views to Star Wars in a series I am calling Views, Views from, a from a Galaxy Far, Far Away. Don't be too proud of this technological terror you've constructed. Well, no, that was that's kind of rude. I mean, I, I would think a Dark Lord of the Sith would be happy that I'm devoting a month of shows to Star Wars. Don't make me destroy you. Look, Vader, we had a deal. I was going to tell everybody about how I'm going to talk about my favorite Star Wars movies, my favorite characters and comics and toys, in addition to talking about The Force Awakens. You were supposed to back me up on this. I am altering the deal. Pray I don't alter it any further. Well, fine then. Can I at least talk about how I'm bringing some of the best and brightest in podcasting along with me on this endeavor? And that the show is going to be weekly through the month of December? The Emperor does not share your optimistic appraisal of the situation. The Emperor will be listening? Yeah, Then I will have to double my efforts. Apology accepted. I did not ap- You know what? Never mind. What everybody needs to know is that Views, Views from, a from a Galaxy Far, Far Away starts December 1st here at Views from the Long Box. You can find the show on iTunes or by going to www.viewsfromthelongbox.com. We would be honored if you would join us. Finally, you stuck to the script. I find your lack of faith disturbing. Views from views a galaxy, from galaxy far, 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 far away. away. Starting December 1st, only at Views from the Long Box. <laughs>
0: Yep. 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 Okay. I'm back now. And originally, this is just about the point that the show was supposed to end, right? You guys need to understand. I had done all of the editing. I'd done all of the mixing. I'd done the, the quality control check. Everything with this show was prepped, primed, finished, ready to go. And I was basically ready to send this thing out the door. And then I started getting caught up on my From Crisis to Crisis of Superman podcast episodes. And for those of you who don't know, right now, Michael Bailey and Jeffrey Taylor, which is to say the hosts, uh, the, the, the two hosts of <clears throat> From Crisis to Crisis, right now, they're working their way through a storyline entitled Dead Again and this is one of those stories that i always thought came out of one of those famous super summits where the superman creative teams would get together and spitball ideas for a shitload of superman stories to last for an entire year and basically use that as their framework for you know everything that they'd be doing for you know quite a while there and the way it always went in my mind was somebody sat down at the table and said, Hey guys, wouldn't it be cool if Superman busted down the wall of the Superman tomb slash memorial at this point, since it's, I, the guy's not dead anymore. So it's really not accurate to call it a tomb, I guess. But anyway, so, but like, wouldn't it be cool if like he smashed down the wall of the tomb and then hey, there's the body of Superman laying there, and so who's the guy that we've been reading about in these stories all this time, right? And then they kind of fill in the blanks on a story that can fit around that concept. I wouldn't be surprised, actually, if a lot of comic book stories come from that. And so nobody's ever come right out and said so, but that's just the way I've always kind of suspected that that story began. And for those of you who put a a, a premium... On clarity, allow me to just say that I'm not criticizing nor am I praising that approach. I'm simply saying that I happen to think that's the way that a lot of comic book stories come into existence, right? Like I say, not criticizing it, not praising it. I'm just acknowledging what I believe to be the truth. So, now, one of the things that I've noticed about Superman fans is they really don't like Superman comics, right? They can say whatever bullshit to the contrary that they want, but my personal view is that they really don't enjoy Superman comic books because there are very few Superman stories out there where a consensus of fans all agree, you know what, this story is awesome, you know? There may be a few, but by and large, there's... there there are very few stories that everybody can agree upon is, is awesome, right? But even by that standard, you know, there, I think it would be fair to say that Dead Again is one of those stories that a lot of people just don't seem to have a whole lot of appreciation for. I don't know why, but the impression I've always had is that the reputation that Dedigan has, like Dedigan as a story, the reputation that it has is not all that good. And especially at the time that the story was coming out, there was, I shouldn't say a backlash, but there was a little bit of popular resistance to Dedigan as a concept. You know, like fuckers, this is a story that you already told. You know, do we really need to revisit this? You know, are are your sales slacking off that much? You know, friggin' blah 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 blah. I mean, I wouldn't say that the response was toxic, but I just I don't remember anybody at the time that Dead Again was coming out. I really don't remember anybody sitting there and saying, "Oh my god, this 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 story is awesome! It, it, it's gonna it's gonna melt your balls! It's so awesome, and you've got to buy it because th- this story is fucking amazing!" You know, I. I just don't remember a whole lot of people saying that, you know? And certainly the intervening years don't really seem like they've been much kinder to Dead Again as a story. It is one of the early to mid-90s... It's the consummate also ran Superman story from the early to mid-90s period, you know? And that just seems to be the, the way that most people regard it. I've seen a lot of people talk down dead again on Facebook. And, you know, I'm very well accustomed to not exactly being in lockstep with my my own fraternity. It's a position I seem to find myself in. Not about everything, but about a lot of things, you know? I'm the guy in the room that really doesn't like Superman 2 all that much. I'm the guy in the room that can and will, and I have, defended the Joel Schumacher Batman. Both of them. And this seems to be yet another instance of me just not really understanding where people are coming from when it comes to what I guess you might call the prevailing fan sentiment about something. Dead again in this case, right? I guess I just don't get it. You know, it this is a story that I look, I'm not going to sit here and tell you that this is the greatest Superman story that mankind has ever or will ever achieve and and anything like look i'm not making that argument but the way that people look down their nose at dead again it almost makes me wonder if we're if we're reading the same story that's how toxic in some cases people seem to have seem to view dead again right now my response to that is it's like everything it's it's multi-layered, it's, it's textured, it's nuanced. It's not really so simple as saying the storyline is awesome or the storyline sucks. It, it, it's not so easily pigeonholed. For one thing, and forgive me, I'm already forgetting the issue number, but that issue of Action Comics that has Superman skulking around on the cover, he's carrying the dead body, it's slung over his shoulder, and he just has this really creepy look to him and indeed in the storyline itself, he becomes, I think the clinical term is completely fucking unglued, because he's about to curb stomp Maggie Sawyer, and probably kill her, and you get the idea that he's pretty much lost all grasp on reality, right? And honestly, I really do feel like that's going a bit too far with the material. Whatever else Superman may be, he ought to always be adjusted, very well adjusted, you know? And so unless your story is, this is the story where Superman goes crazy because of external forces. Well, dude, you need to make sure it's because it's external forces. Somebody is pushing a button or somebody has somehow poisoned Superman or somebody has done something where Superman, outside of his own, outside of his usual mental faculties, shall we say, He's kind of going off the deep end, you know? He's going just a little bit crackers. And it needs to be because of external forces. Whereas in Dead Again, he's responding to things that are happening around him, but there's no magic talisman that's driving him crazy. He's not wearing the one ring around his neck, and it's driving him insane or anything like that, or he's, he's not been exposed to a special variety of red kryptonite that's driven him super crazy for an issue. No, he's sincerely going fucking nuts. And I kind of regard that as a weakness of the story. That having been said, that's really the only major gripe I've got with the story. Otherwise, I find it re- you know really enjoyable. And like I say, I mean, I've got multiple reasons for that the perception that the burn age Superman has is that Clark Kent is the identity that this character identifies with. Clark Kent, that's the character. And Superman is really just a facade that Clark Kent uses to do things that need to be done. But Clark Kent does not want to risk Clark Kent's private life. And so Clark Kent contrived the identity of Superman to do those things. But really, Superman has no particular value to Clark Kent. And Exhibit A on that, that a lot of people point to, is Man of Steel, Burns' Man of Steel, number six, where Clark explicitly identifies Superman as being just a fancy pair of long johns, but there's no there there, you know? There's really, there, there is no Superman you know, there's only Clark Kent, and there are the things that Clark Kent can do. But Superman as an identity is really just a facade. You know, there's there's nothing substantial there. The character identifies as Clark Kent. And God knows that was the, I guess, the view that I had of Superman, the Burn Age Superman, for a lot of years there. And there was, I think it was the, the first episode of Lois and Clark uh, where Tempest showed up, you know, Tempest's first appearance. I think Clark's dialogue there was, Clark Kent is who I am. Superman is what I can do. And I got to tell you, you know, for a lot of years, that was pretty much my interpretation of Superman because that was kind of what, at least superficially, that's what John Byrne... ...laid down for us, you know? And it was only after I started really reading and analyzing Reign of the Superman... ...that I realized, you know what? That might have been true once upon a time. This character, might, he might have thought about himself... ...as predominantly Clark Kent. At least once upon a time. But this character has been through so fucking much that th- he he still self-identifies predominantly as Clark Kent but this idea that he doesn't care about Superman as as for lack of a better word an alter ego or a, or an alternate identity or what have you that just isn't true anymore and when i really started like the the first time i really noticed this i was reading reign of the superman and you know for a guy who who once described Superman as being little more than just a fancy pair of long johns and then that's it, he was awfully territorial about other characters wearing that symbol. That symbol had come to mean something to Superman. And it was something that he personally had become identified with and I think he personally had come to identify himself with. That's not to say that the model that John Byrne had laid out was completely reversed, because I don't think it was. This character still self-identifies as Superman. Sorry, he still self-identifies as Clark. Clark Kent is the real character. I'm just saying he'd come to have considerable regard for Superman as a public face and just how pissed off he got about all these other people that were running around Metropolis wearing his symbol to me indicates that this is it's not just a fancy pair of long johns anymore this name this symbol means something and it meant something to clark it meant something to people but it also meant something to clark and he didn't want just anybody running around calling himself superman and wearing those colors, wearing that symbol, you know? I think it was it was very implicit in Reign of the Superman. But then from there, you get into Adventures of Superman number 506, which, for those of you with short memories, that was the issue where Superman reacquired the copyright to the name Superman, and then the Superman symbol. And then he agreed to let Superboy use the symbol, and then call himself Superboy. And again, why would he care about that if Superman was just a cape to him, and then that's it? Just a just a convenient secret identity that Clark Kent hides behind now and then so that he can do things that only Clark Kent can do. There's that to consider. He The, the fact that this existed as a corporate property didn't upset him. What he wanted was to be the owner of that corporate property. He wanted to control that brand, that image. He wanted to be in control of it. Which, when you think about what has to go on behind the scenes psychologically for somebody to go from regarding this as just a, a, a fancy pair of long johns, as I keep saying, to a beacon and a symbol that he wants to personally control, that means something. Then you get into Action Comics number 692, where Superman has to pretty much set the Superman cult straight. There was this religious cult, and this is a storyline I always fucking hated, but there was this religious cult that identified Superman as Christ, They identified him as the Messiah, the Savior. And... Superman kind of took offense to that. You know, he, he made an, a, a point of explicitly saying, I am not the Messiah. And again, it kind of speaks to the fact that this character doesn't just think of the identity of Superman as a front end, you know, a sort of a mask that Clark Kent can wear so that he can do things without risking his own privacy in the process, right? This, the, the identity of Superman the, the public image of Superman, and as it goes for this story, one could say the spiritual image of Superman means something to him. So we now see Clark Kent wanting to control Superman's public image, and as part of that public image, he doesn't want anybody to think that he's somehow the Son of God, that he's somehow the Messiah, the Christ, the Savior. You know, he doesn't want anybody to view him that way. And it means so much to him that he's actually willing to call these people out and say, hey guys, you need to knock it the fuck off because that's not who I am. And and so again, you know, this is another indication of just how much Superman as an identity means to Clark. But then you start getting into debt again, and we and to me, this is where the scales end up kind of tipping a little bit, because now this fiction that is Superman is starting to become, we are, it's not that he's starting to become, we now re- realize that he has stopped being, as far as Clark Kent is concerned, a mask. Clark Kent is Clark Kent. He was Clark Kent in his mind. He was Clark Kent the day he was born. He will be Clark Kent the day that he dies. But this idea that he has absolutely, positively no regard for Superman the way that he did in Burns' Man of Steel, number six, that's no longer binding on him. Does that make sense? Superman, as an abstract concept, means something to Clark now. He is enfranchised in Superman. He's invested in Superman. And it means a lot to him that the public is starting to question whether or not he's Superman. Now, again, think back to Burns' Man of Steel, number six, where he, I think rather dismissively, describes Superman as being, again, a fancy pair of long johns. Would, Would Clark in Burns' Man of Steel, number six, have gotten as pissed off as Clark did in Dead Again about what's going on with this dead body and why don't these people believe me when I tell them that I am Superman? I don't think he would have. But at this stage in the game, Clark has been through so much and this symbol has come to mean so much to so many people all across the world that his his view of Superman has grown and it's changed and it's morphed and it's become something that I don't think he ever originally thought that it was going to be. And there's another storyline coming later on down the line where we get clarification on this, that yes, this character still identifies as Clark. He cares about Superman. Superman means something to him. This symbol means something to him. This name means something to him. But he's still Clark. And like I say, that's going to become, I think, very apparent in the death of Clark Kent. And honestly... I think that's something more for the guys at crisis, uh, from Crisis to Crisis to talk about. That's going to be their thing, and whatever, that's fine. But Dead Again, I would say Reign of the Superman, Dead Again, and to some degree or another, The Death of Clark Kent, they kind of fit together in a weird, fucked-up kind of way as a trilogy unto themselves, where we find out what it is that, that Clark Kent thinks of Clark Kent as an identity, and also Superman as an identity. And he draws, in the end, he draws some very interesting philosophical conclusions from all of that. And because I'm very unlikely to ever talk about the death of Clark Kent on this show, I'll just say that there comes a point near the end of the, of, uh, the death of Clark Kent, or maybe after the the, uh, the story is ended, and we're kind of in this unofficial death of Clark Kent sort of epilogue, where Clark briefly considers giving up his Clark Kent identity and just being Superman full-time. And Lois, she comes up with some very valid, very lucid reasons why he cannot do that. But I nevertheless believe that Superman started the Death of Clark Kent storyline scared absolutely shitless about the possibility that Clark Kent as an identity, as a public identity, may be dead. By the end of the story, you know, he's starting to think to himself, you know what? The idea of being Superman full-time, that's got some disco potential to it, you know? And I think there's a lot of psychological bullshit going on there where this character... Again, it would be inaccurate to say that anybody other than Clark Kent is this character's core identity, but he has become... He's come to a place where he's, to a degree, kind of psychologically dependent upon Clark Kent as... Or, sorry, he's psychologically dependent upon Superman as kind of an outlet for the things that Clark Kent can do, you know? It's more now than just helping people in a way that protects Clark Kent's privacy, it's now become something a lot bigger than that to Clark himself. And he, pl- he places a lot of value on Superman as a name, as a symbol, and as a force for justice. And this, I think, is a mentality that would have been absolutely positively foreign to John Burns' Clark Kent. I just don't think he would have taken the events of Dead Again—well, Dead Again, really, Reign of the Superman, Dead Again, and the death of Clark Kent. I don't think he would have taken those quite as seriously as, as he did during Reign of the Superman, Dead Again, and the death of Clark Kent. And so that's one of the main reasons that I love Dead Again— You know, well, I I don't know if I love it, but I really do enjoy that storyline. I mean, I think you could fairly well argue that the Superman creative team, as it was in 1994, they were starting to run out of ideas. And I think that becomes a bit more apparent in 1996, 1997, and through there. But I think even in 1994, the cracks are kind of starting to show a little bit that I don't think Dead Again was as well done on a technical level, as it might have been. Whereas, in, I don't know, starting in 1988, <clears throat> 89, 90, and through there, I'm at a real loss to think of very many stories where I can say, you know what, that just did not come together all that well. I mean, there are instances of that, you know, there are individual issues where it's a little bit of a clunker, but by and large, I regard Superman starting in Man of Steel number one, and then going right on through to some vague, unknown, arbitrary point in 1994, in 1995, and around there. It's like the character just lost steam or something, you know? <clears throat> Nevertheless, I do feel that Dead Again is, a, is a, a pretty solid story for what it says about Clark Kent. The other thing, though, is when you think about it... There is a little bit of a of a dangling plot thread, or perhaps a character thread from Reign of the Superman that never really got resolved until Dead Again. And when you think about Reign of the Superman as a story, what you kind of have to figure is that it's it's really a story with three movements. You know? You've got two months of these Supermen, these brand new characters that are running around Metropolis and to varying degrees, they're all trying to pick up where Superman left off. And some of them are even calling themselves Superman. And there's all this speculation going on in the media, you know, which one of these guys, if any of them, is the real Superman and all of that stuff. And that that's not all there is to Reign of the Superman, but that's one of the major elements of Reign of the Superman. And there was a little bit of a pissing contest in the media <clears throat> in the media and also i think with the man on the street in the dc universe and especially in metropolis trying to figure out which one of these guys is the real guy you know and different people had different opinions on that and when you think about it when reign of the superman ended the people of metropolis instinctively welcomed superman back even though by all rights he's the fifth guy in just a couple of weeks to show up claim to be superman and all kinds of wacky bullshit ensues but he was never really called out on the carpet you know no one ever really questioned him and said hey are you in fact superman or are you just another pretender most everybody just accepted him as the real thing and life went on. And I think a major cause for that was the simple reality that the death of Superman went on for about two months and then funeral for a friend went on for about two months. And then I think reign of the Superman, I think that went on for like three or four months or something like that. And you know, right around then, I mean, we're getting to a point now where this storyline's been kind of dragged out now for a year. So maybe it's time now to start getting things back to normal. And let's just tell some good old-fashioned, plain old fun Superman stories, you know? And so I can understand wanting to get things back to the status quo as quickly as possible. And whenever you do any kind of truly creative type of work, You don't necessarily have time to chase after every single idea that you've got, every single story that you want to tell, every single character arc that you want to explore, etc., etc., etc. You don't necessarily have the opportunity to do that. And so I can understand why the creative team might have wanted to just not so much skip that, but maybe save this whole you know, is Superman the real Superman? You know, is the real Superman the real Superman story? Maybe save that for some other time, you know? And I get that. And, you know, is Dead Again necessarily the best exploration of that? Hey, eye of the beholder. But there was a legitimate kind of dangling plot thread left over from Reign of the Superman that I would argue Dead Again kind of ties up And that the people of Metropolis finally see that, yes, this man is in fact the real Superman. He's not a pretender. He's not a clone. He's not an impersonator. He's not anything like that. This is the real guy. And that is an important thing for the narrative to confront and for the people of Metropolis to accept. And so, on that basis, It would be fair to say that's one of the main reasons that I enjoy Dead Again as a story. Now, yeah, there are instances where Dead Again as a story, I don't want to say it goes off the rails exactly, but it's, there are moments where I think the execution is a little bit lacking, or maybe the concept of a particular issue is a little bit lacking, you know, or characters are a little bit out of character or what have you, but, you know, the core concept of Dead Again and what it sets out to accomplish is basically to put paid to the idea that this Superman is anything other than the real Superman. And it's an important thing for the people of Metropolis to know, understand, and accept. So, anyway, like I say, this is all a long way of saying that I really enjoy Dead Again as a story, and I really don't understand why it takes such a beating from people, but... There you have it. So anyway, that is finally the end of the episode. See y'all next week. Okay, so I think that's just about the end of that. Trennis Magnus Punches Reality is a proud member of the Two True Freaks podcast network. You can find the home for Trennis Magnus Punches Reality at twotruefreaks.com, which is spelled T-W-O. T-R-U-E-F-R-E-A-K-S You can also find it on Facebook just by searching for Trentus Magnus Punches Reality. There you can interact with your fellow listeners and also see notifications of new episodes when I put them up. You can friend me on Facebook just by searching for Trentus Magnus, which is spelled T-R-E-N-T-U-S-M-A-G-U-S N U S you can email me and my parole officer at Trenus at gmail.com. Do you have a suggestion for a topic? Feel free to email me and I might consider thinking about the possibility of potentially discussing whatever you have in mind someday. And that's a promise. Did you know you can sponsor any episode of this or any other of your favorite Two True Freaks affiliated shows. That's right. Simply click the PayPal link, donate any amount at all, tell us which show you're choosing and what message, if any, you'd like us to read on your behalf and you will be an official sponsor of that show's very next episode. With your message read in the show's opener, it's that easy and there's no minimum donation. Be a show sponsor today. If you shop at Amazon.com, please consider using the link at 2TrueFreaks.com to shop there. If you use this link to go to Amazon and then you shop, 2TrueFreaks gets a cut of what you buy. It doesn't cost you anything extra, and it really helps the freaks out. You get to shop as usual, and help out the two true freaks at the same time. For internal use only. Subject to change without notice. Times are approximate. Simulated picture. Enlarged to show detail. Some assembly required. Many will enter, few will win. Batteries not included. Use only as directed. No other warranty expressed or implied. The white zone is for passenger loading and unloading only. Use other side for additional listings. All models are over the age of 18. Trennis Magnus Punches Reality is a Magnus Media Enterprises Limited production in association with De of Milan, Italy.